Good morning. My name's Abel, and I'm on the community team, which is our adult small groups team. A special welcome to those who are new with us. We are glad you're here. We love 
new people. We feel like you're a gift to our body. So we want to know you're here and get you connected. So you can do that a couple different ways. You can text hashtag new to the number on the screen. Or better yet, stop by the community booth after service and talk to a live human being. They would love to talk with you and welcome you to fellowship. So one of the things we dreamed about and talked about and prayed about and planned for, you can't really plan it, but um, as, as we planned to launch Fellowship Bentonville for five years, we thought, you know what would be amazing is if our people invited others to join us. We think we'll have room, and we do have room to invite. We think that having a local expression will give people maybe fresh motivation to invite others to join us. And that is happening. Um, two weeks ago, we had a newcomers gathering, and getting to hear some of these stories was awesome. So I met this one couple, uh, Dusty and Hannah, and I said, so how long have y'all been in Northwest Arkansas? And they said, we moved here on Friday. And I said, well, two days, and you're here at Fellowship. How in the world did that happen? They said, our home inspector... Um, invited us to come. His son's actually preaching across the way, uh, Hunter. So Hunter's dad, Jeff, did a home inspection, said y'all should come to church. Dusty and Hannah showed up here, came to the newcomers gathering. Hopefully they're here today. Uh, Another story I heard was uh, that really made me smile. I met uh, a lady walked up to me and said, do you know who I am? And, And I'm like, I totally know who you are. Yes, I see you often. How, where, but my mind went blank. It was out of context. And she said, I'm Fran. I said, oh, Miss Fran. Miss Fran runs up and down our street multiple times a day. So we see her and we wave and say, hi, Miss Fran. And so um, she said, I'm here because Anna invited me. And I'm like, Anna Grace, my nine-year-old daughter. And so um, I thought I would invite Anna and Fran to come up and share, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. So, so Fran, this is your third time to fellowship, and, uh, and so for new people, you get two freebies. Third time, you're up on stage, okay? Um, now, Fran, when you met Anna, um, how, did she, how did she strike up a conversation? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I didn't know that she had a street ministry, <laughs> but she said, I've been watching you run by here, and I said to myself, that's a woman who knows what she's doing. How about that? That's a great line, Anna Grace. <laughs> That is really good. So you met Miss Fran, and what made you want to invite her to church? She's really nice, and I love our church, and I think they go perfect together. They go perfect together, I thought. That's good. Like peanut butter and jelly, huh? Just like peanut butter and jelly. That's good. So, um, yes, Fran got invited, and, and... what was going on a little bit on your side of the story? So Anna just sees Fran running up and down the street, introduce herself, invites the church. But what was going on uh, in your life? And yeah. Well, just I had moved here, and it was a difficult move. I don't know how many of you all can identify with a difficult move. But, and it was also during COVID. So Anna was one of the first people that was really friendly to me. And I was just so thankful for that. And I had, as I moved through this wonderful neighborhood running on 10th Street, my new hood, um, <laughs> that I prayed for the people that were there. Of course, I didn't know them yet, but I prayed for the new people in my neighborhood. And I just was going to share a scripture that the Lord put on my heart today that is Genesis 24:40, And Abraham said to his servant, the Lord will send his angels before you today. He, the angel will go before you, and they will grant you success. Maybe Anna was my angel. <laughs> That's sweet. So, Anna Grace, um, how, how did you invite Miss Fran? What did you say? I said, hey, you can come to our church. Maybe you can even run there. Mm. Have you run to church yet? 
Uh, not yet. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll be expecting that. We will be expecting that. So, Anna, will you, uh, can, we, can we pray together to start the service? Okay. Dear Lord, I pray for all these wonderful people, and I pray that we all get to invite new people, and I pray for um, the relationship we all grow with, and, and I pray that we all get to know each other. Lord, you're so good to us. You provide us with the best things in life, and that's relationship with you and with one another. Pray that we would treasure that. Lord, you give us so many good gifts, and uh, Lord, would we give back to you just a portion of what you blessed us with uh, out of grateful hearts, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. That was beautiful. Fellowship, would you stand and sing this song together?
You 
Lord, forgive us for being awake for hours this morning without telling you that we love you. But it's good to say it and to sing it now. We do love you. We love you because you first loved us. You're the holy God, completely self-sufficient and other, but you desired relationship with us. And so you loved us enough to seek us, to save us, to make us friends. Cause that friendship to be so close that we are called family. Lord, we do love you. We owe you our lives, and it's our joy to give you our lives. We thank you that you give us your word, that your word grows us up. Yes, you do love us. Love us enough to save us and love us enough to speak to us. And so we would tell you now, we are listening. Grow our faith, Lord Jesus, grow our faith. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. So good to hear you all singing behind me. It's the best thing about sitting in the front row is having the choir behind you. It's the way it should be. Good morning. Hey, it's that thing that creates panic, and you know what I'm talking about. Maybe for you it could be a phone call in the middle of the night. Maybe it's a conversation that uh, tells you the relationship is over or that the job has been terminated or that a a radical medical treatment is needed for the next step. But whatever it is, it's that thing that suddenly creates panic in us. And, and as much as we can imagine that somehow we're, we're bulletproof in life, that's the thing that once again reminds us that we are one moment from a place of being desperate. And when that happens, when the panic, when that sense of desperation takes over, it triggers a response in the brain. We sometimes call it fight or flight. You've been there. You know what it feels like, and that's why you can empathize this morning with the gentleman that the Apostle John introduces us to. We pick up his story in John chapter 4, verse 46. The text tells us that once more he, that's Jesus, visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. And so this is going to be the second miracle story in the book of John. And it's telling us the who, the what, and the where of this story that we'll look at this morning. And the where is quite simple. It's two cities, Cana and Capernaum, both of them in Galilee. They're about 20 miles apart. If maybe you could walk to a two to three mile per hour pace, maybe if you're Miss Fran, you're at two miles an hour. If you're like Abel, three and a half, four miles an hour. This is uphill though. So Capernaum is below sea level. Cana is in the hill country. I don't know. All we know is that this is considered a full day's journey. Probably takes 10 hours to make this journey. The who in the story obviously is Jesus. But we're introduced to a second person. He's known as a royal official. The word means a nobleman. That means he's, a, he's an official, a member of, of King Herod's court. That means he's a man with prestige and position. He's a guy with influence and money. I'm sure his high position creates stress in his daily life. But it also affords him a level of luxury and privilege that few enjoy around him. And yet, no amount of privilege can insulate him from that moment of panic. The what? Well, his son is sick, very sick. How sick is he? Well, he's sick enough to trigger a fight or flight response. So this man is going to fight for his son's very life by fleeing to the town of Cana to find Jesus. Look as the story continues in verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him. He begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. This man's need is desperate. 
I don't know how desperate it has to be, but when your son is that sick that you would choose to leave and take a 10-hour journey away, not knowing that this might be the last time you see him, well, I don't think we have to imagine too hard that the fear factor must have been high. Now, remember, he's a royal official. What we don't know is whether he's Jewish or Gentile. What we do know is two things about him. Regardless of whether he's Jewish or Gentile, we know that he serves King Herod, who is a corrupt kind of puppet, semi-pagan king. Well, that would make him an outsider to the religious establishment. But it would also turn around and make him an insider to the political establishment. This is a man with connections. Listen, we and I know that money can't fix all our problems, but when we're honest, we know that it does give us a good set of options, doesn't it? And this is a man with options. I mean, I need you to think of a C-suite executive at a major corporation. Or think of a, the chief of staff for the governor. That's who you have here. And when you have that kind of position, and your child is diagnosed with a life-threatening illness, folks, you pick up the phone and you call in your connections. And soon you're on a plane to Mayo Clinic or Cleveland Clinic or MD Anderson or St. Jude. Guys, he has exhausted all of those options in town. And panic has taken over. His son's fever grows worse. The blood pressure is dropping. His breathing is more labored. And rumor is that a healer has come back from Jerusalem and is back in Cana. And so this man, he starts his 20-mile journey. Picture in your mind, Fellowship Bentonville to Children's Hospital in Springdale. That's how far he headed out. Our friend is so desperate, he does not send his servant. We're going to find out later he has multiple servants. He could have sent them. But he didn't want to trust this to anyone else but himself. He thinks that he has luck on his side because when he arrives in Cana, even though it takes him 10 hours to get there, Jesus is still in town and he arrives sweaty and exhausted and he's dirty. And he drops to his feet and he begs Jesus to come with him to heal his son. And I wonder when the last time this man has begged. He's used to having people beg him for favor. And now he finds himself in the other side of the story. And it does remind us we are all one desperate moment from dropping to our knees and begging someone with authority. How does Jesus answer? Look at verse 48. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. That feels harsh, doesn't it? I can't imagine as a pastor looking at someone who's facing a life-threatening situation and, and speaking so harshly. Jesus replies in an indirect way, though. The word you here, actually in the Greek, it's plural, which is why the English adds the word you people. In the, in the South, we have a word for that. It's what? Y'all. Yeah, you know it. Y'all know it. And what he says now, he's not just talking to this royal official. He's talking indirectly to the royal official and everybody else who's gathered around him. And he says, oh, and I wonder if he sighs. Unless you all see a miracle, you simply won't believe. And when he says that, it shows that Jesus loves enough to uncover our deeper needs and not just talk about our surface, though real, desperate needs. The Savior loves us enough to want what we need most. And what we need most is the key word in that verse. Believe. We need to believe in who Jesus is and what Jesus can do because it's this faith, this trust, that's the only path to abundant life. A healthy boy without belief in the Savior, that's not the good life. And Jesus knows that. And he loves too much to leave this man with a desperate need when he sees his deeper need too. Abel Schaefer is prone to say sometimes that a, a healthy person has a thousand wishes, 
but a sick person has only one wish. Isn't that true? When you feel that or a loved one feels it that desperately, it becomes the only thing we seek. And what Abel means by that, and sometimes he'll say that when we're gathering to pray for you, and, and we pray for needs in this body, and when a physical health need comes up, we know that that's the real pressing thing, and it's all you can see everywhere you look. And yet there are still other needs, aren't there? Sometimes deeper. And those are the ones that Jesus goes for here. He's not minimizing this dad's desperate need of a sick son. He knows the son is still near death, and the situation is scary. But he also knows that this is not the only thing this dad needs. His desperate need is cloaking his deeper need. And Jesus, he wants to put his arms around the whole need. The illness that brought him there and the deeper need, the hole in his heart to know a life-giving God who wants to know him. Verse 49 continues the story. The royal official said, Sir... Come down before my child dies. Verse 50. Go, Jesus said. Your son will live. Our friend in this story is persistent, isn't he? He's persistent because he loves his boy. Jesus is persistent. He's persistent because he loves this man and his boy. And he wants to go for the heart not just the physical body. He creates a crisis of faith in this man. Notice the dad has given Jesus a command. This is actually command, imperative language in the Greek. His command to Jesus is come. That must be his native language. He's used to giving orders. And then he gives a reason. My child is going to die. Jesus responds to him with a command. Go. And then he gives a reason. The reason is called a promise. Your child lives. You notice how direct opposite those two verses are from each other? I mean, in some ways it sounds a lot like our prayer life. We continue to ask God to do something on our behalf. Sometimes we tell him what to do. Sometimes we command him what to do, and we give him good reason. We're in a desperate situation. Clearly, the only way you need to work is like this. Come with me. And he turns around and occasionally gives us an answer that's the direct opposite of what we've asked for. And this causes us to doubt God, doubt his love, doubt his goodness. But he does this because he loves us. See, in his answer, Jesus is creating a crisis of faith. Because what's this dad's deepest need? I know what his desperate need is. His desperate need is to have his son healed. But what's his deeper need? To believe in who Jesus is and what Jesus can do. And so he wants to move in a way that touches this man's deeper need as well. Now, we have to admire this, this royal official's faith. At least I admire it. First of all, he had the faith to come to Jesus. He had a desperate need. He comes to Jesus. Let's just call that a crisis faith. I know what that feels like. I've been there. A crisis faith that drives you to Jesus. See, at some level, he believes Jesus is able to heal his son. But Jesus loves him too much to just leave him at a crisis faith. Because a crisis faith alone, where you just go to God once you're desperate, well, that's not the good life. How much would Jesus have to dislike us to leave us at that level of faith? Oh, no. Jesus loves too much, and he wants to grow this man's faith. So he creates a, a crisis of faith. It's designed to take him deeper on his faith journey. So he gives Jesus a promise. Your son lives. And then he gives him a command. Go. Walk away without me. Leave. Without the healer you came to get, believing, you'll still get the healing. Oh, I would be terrified. I wonder what he'll do. The rest of verse 50, 
The man took Jesus at his word and departed. I'm stunned by this. Actually, I'm in awe of this. It is awesome in the true sense of the word, filled with awe. There's something about his, his faith here that is it's just beautiful. I mean, he's a man of privilege and position and power and possessions. And listen, let's be honest with one another. When you have a sense of wealth and power, you're used to people telling you yes when you ask for things. But not only does Jesus tell him no, but Jesus gives him an order. And I wonder when the last time he's been ordered. But the text tells us he takes Jesus at his word. Now, some of you might be holding a phone app that has the, maybe the New American Standard or the ESV or almost any other version. It says he believed the word Jesus spoke. And I think the NIV is giving us a fantastic definition of what it means to believe in Jesus. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It means to take him at his word. That if he gave you a promise, it's as good as he is good. And this dad's faith is so beautiful. I think the reason it's beautiful is it has this gritty mix of both courage and humility all wound up together. I mean, look at his faith journey. He had the faith to come to Jesus with his desperate need, makes a 20-mile journey up a hill, and now he has the faith to go without Jesus. He comes to Jesus believing Jesus is able to heal his son, but he must leave Jesus without him, believing that he's actually willing to heal his son and that his word is good enough. I'm going to call that a surrendered faith. And a surrendered faith is a beautiful thing. He does the opposite of exactly what Jesus said the people around him were doing. Remember Jesus' comment? Unless you people see a miracle, you just won't believe. This man believes, and yet he has not seen the miracle yet. Courageous and humble. Yeah, it's the mixture of a surrendered faith. Look as the story continues in verse 51. While the man was on his, still on his way, his servants, plural, met him with the news that his boy was living. And when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, you might be holding a Bible that says the seventh hour. One o'clock is the seventh hour. The fever left him then. And so sometimes I wonder this. It's just my imagination, and I've got a good shot at being wrong. But I wonder if for the rest of this man's life, he could ever hear someone tell him the time, the seventh hour or one o'clock, and not have a moment of worship. Because worship happens every single time awe meets gratitude in our life. Anytime you're in awe and, gratitude and grateful for something, you are worshiping. And I wonder sometimes if he heard his wife call from the next room, it's the seventh hour, the meal is ready. He had another moment. That was the moment my boy was healed. That was the moment my faith was birthed. And it became deep and real and life-giving in my life. I think it's one o'clock or the seventh hour somewhere for somebody all the time. Where God is still working, a healing and answering their circumstance, and at the same time, growing and deepening faith. And I believe that sometimes God does both of those at the same time. Sometimes he grows our faith and he heals at the same time. And I believe he's pleased to also do those separately. Grow our faith, even while we're waiting for a healing or grow our faith even after we've suffered the loss and are deeply grieving. This official's 20-mile trip is nothing more than a, a journey of faith. Remember, the text tells us that he, he, he sat out at, set out at 1 o'clock in the afternoon when Jesus said, go, your son lives. And he's working his way down from Cana to Capernaum. But at the same time, he doesn't know it, but at that very moment... 
his son's fever leaves and a couple of servants get up and start making the uphill trek. Now, if they're traveling at the same time, that means they meet each other halfway, right? I'm grateful for fourth grade word math problems. How about you? And I just wonder, what did this man think as he's winding himself down the hills and he recognizes his two servants coming up the hill? Is he panicked? Oh, no, they're going to tell me I got home too late. Was he overjoyed? No, I'm still taking Jesus at his word. (laughs) I want to hear what they have to say. He hears the news, the news he can't wait to hear. And he has to ask, hey, what time did my boy get out of bed? The exact same time Jesus spoke. Don't you see his entire journey down that hill was a journey of faith. For 10 miles down the hill, he is believing and taking Jesus at his word, even uh, without knowing whether his son is out of bed and he's doing well. But in the last 10 miles of the journey, he's believing without seeing it for his own eyes. But it doesn't matter for both halves of the journey. He's just taking God at his word. It's a walk of faith. It's a surrendered faith. And the story continues in verse 53. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. There's the word again. That's the goal Jesus was going for all along. 54. This was the second sign, the second miracle Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Men and women, this is the power of real faith in our lives. It becomes influencing to those around us. You don't have to scheme up how someone's life has to gets changed. You just live and walk with Jesus by faith, and there's an overflow into the lives of others. So this royal official's wife comes to know who Jesus is and what he can do. His son, who now lives, maybe the siblings, his servants come to know the servants' spouses and their children. How many people in this house? Many. And that's the point. A surrendered faith becomes a contagious faith. It was a faith to come up the hill. It was a faith to go down the hill. And now it's a faith to share with those around him. Because real faith in Jesus is contagious like this. And by the way, the best thing about this story is that this man got so much more than he asked of Jesus. See, he brought his prayer request. Heal my boy. And God just being God is always doing way more than we think he's doing. He gives this boy physical life and spiritual life at the same time. This son will come to know Jesus because his dad had a crisis of faith and chose to surrender and follow Jesus. See, the journey of faith in this story, I think it looks an awful lot like mine and yours. There's a crisis faith. You've walked them, I've walked them, where it makes you desperate to come to Jesus. But then there's a surrendered faith where you wrestle with him and what he wants to do, and maybe he does exactly what you've asked him to do. Maybe he does the opposite. But regardless, you choose to trust him and his goodness and strength. And out of that surrendered faith, there becomes a deeper, more contagious quality to our faith. It's life-giving, not just to us, but to others. And I so wish that the Christian life looked as neatly stepped out as that. Where step one, I come to Jesus, I have a need. Step two, I surrender to him. Step three, I'm just going to walk it out contagiously. Check, check, check. Maybe that's your life, not mine. Faith journey usually looks something like that. It's more cyclical than linear, where we often face a crisis that makes us come to Jesus in desperation. And as we wrestle with God, not in a one-time conversation, sometimes over months and even years, we wrestle with him in this crisis. And we learn to submit to whatever he, he chooses for us, believing in his goodness and strength. And we walk with him, believing in him, even while we surrender. 
can't explain it, but something contagious happens in our faith. We just know. We, we know we've got a, a peace that just defies common sense. I mean, your friends around you might tell you you're in denial, but you know that it's just a peace that goes beyond understanding. We know there's a joy in us that's deeper than circumstance or a love for others as they walk through hardship that we never had that depth of compassion for. There is a life in us that a contagious faith gives. And because Jesus loves us so much, he turns right back around and leads us to another crisis of faith. That's a good Savior. Because faith is how we experience more of him. You know, I think Jesus is far more interested in growing our faith than we are in having him grow it. We want to experience him, but kind of have life leave us alone in terms of painful circumstances. And he says, there's no such thing as life apart from a growing relationship with me. And the way you experience me is through faith, and so I'm going to stretch your faith and make it bigger so that you can experience more of who I am. And he walks us right back to another crisis faith, which comes from a deeper surrendered faith, a little more contagious and life-giving, and so on and so on, until we get to be with him face to face, and faith is no more. And we are like him. God loves us enough to keep growing our faith. But I find myself praying like a different dad in the gospel accounts. This account is in the book of Mark. Another dad has an ill son, life-threateningly ill. And he comes to Jesus, and he falls at his knees with his boy, and he says, Jesus, if you are able, heal my son. And Jesus, one of the only handful of times you see him indignant, looks at the man and says, if, excuse me, if, if I'm able. All things are possible to those who believe. This is what that man says next. Mark 9, 24. The boy's father cries out, I do believe. Oh, but help me in my unbelief. Are you more like this dad than the dad in our story in John this morning? I am. You know what I'm grateful for? Jesus listens to the prayers of this dad, too, and he helps grow our faith. Help me in my unbelief, Lord, he says, exactly. It's what I do. Saviors, save, and I'll grow your faith. And he grows our faith by giving us promises in his word and then using the circumstances of life to stretch our faith because he knows that our faith is the path to experiencing him. See, I think our journey of faith I think it feels more like this. It feels more like repelling. I've been repelling a few times. I can proudly tell you it's a highly overrated experience. Every time we do family camp, which for our family is every summer, we now take our grandkids as well as our son, and they'll often talk us into doing repelling. I hate that. But I don't want to act like I hate it, so I do what you do through the spiritual life. I pose confident and competent. And while you're up there harnessed in, inching your way backwards towards the ledge, your highly trained 20-something who's outdoorsy and has had a one-hour course tells you, this is really simple, sir. All you need to do is lean into the rope and walk backwards off the edge. Trust the rope, he says. Lean into the rope. Listen, I don't know what you picture faith in the Christian life like, but get rid of any time you read the Bible and see the word believe or faith and think that it means agree with or acknowledge. Because I can agree with and acknowledge the rope all I want, but until I lean in it, I'm not trusting the rope. And whenever you read believe for the rest of our time in John, which 
so dangerous to do math in public, but I think is 12 more times together in John. You're going to read believe in every single sermon, and you think lean into the rope. Rely on it. Trust it. So how do we do that? I wish there was a quick formula, but I do think there's a life process. First, I think we need to take something solid in our hands. Solid like a rope. By the way, in the scriptures, we call these the promises of God. And we lean on them and we trust them to do what they're meant to do, which is see God come through. We take Jesus at his word. I wish there was a shortcut. I would give it to you, but there's not. We lean on the promises of God. And secondly, we keep trusting in who Jesus is and what Jesus can do. Every step of your faith journey, he wants to teach you more of who he is, more of what he can do. And that causes the faith to grow inside of us. And I don't know if he will do for you what he did for the royal official and give you exactly what you need or what you're asking him for. But I do know he will always give us at least what we need. He'll meet that deeper need we have to believe. There will be a one o'clock or a seventh hour in our lives that God will provide for our good and for his glory every single time, even if it takes time to see it. And so this week, I wrestled, especially Thursday morning, with, Lord, how do we end a message like this? I mean, we see the punchline of this royal official's faith that goes from crisis to surrender to contagious, and it sounds like you close the book, and then the next line is, they all lived happily ever after. But I don't live in fairy tales, and I walk with a group of people who are wise enough to not live in fairy tales. We have to wrestle with you as we lean into the rope and trust God's promises. So how do we wrap it up? And I think you sit and we process with God. We ask questions of him. In fact, I'm hoping this week you'll ask questions, and even these questions will come up in your community group this week. Where are you now in your faith journey? Are you at that crisis place where you come to Jesus, there's a desperate sense of something driving you there? Are you at a surrendered place where it's deepening and widening? Are you at a contagious place, or are you finding yourself being pushed right back through the cycle? Where are you in your journey with Jesus? And then secondly, where is Jesus telling you to trust him more? Because he is telling you to trust him more. He loves you that much. Maybe rather than ending with a conclusion, we leave these questions and we take them to God even now. Would you begin to ask him these questions?
end with a couple opportunities uh, for you in your faith journey as you continue to grow. We've got an event coming up soon. We don't do a lot of events at Fellowship, but this, is, this might be our best one. It's called Family Camp, and any of you are welcome. Um, my family and I have been going to this for about 12 years now, and it has been a blast for us. Memories made, spiritual growth uh, opportunities together as a family, and getting to meet tons of other families. And so if you're new, please come to family camp. This, is, this can be like a year of attending services in a day, right, in terms of connection with others. So Please come with us to family camp. We would, we would love to have you. Uh, also, if you are not coming to family camp, but you come to church on the 29th, on Memorial Day weekend, they will not have elementary services. So they'll be, your children will be in here with you. That might be a good enough reason to come to family camp with us. <laughs> so please, please consider joining us. Um, lastly, we have the Zizers over here. They would love to pray with you. And, uh, and bring any concerns uh, you have um, to the Lord together. And uh, as you go, would you greet one another? Would you introduce yourself to one another? Just like, maybe use Anna Grace's line. Hey, I've been watching you. You, uh, you seem like a person who knows what you're doing. So maybe try that one. So God bless you all. You're dismissed.